from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Office of Management and Budget announced on Tuesday that 230 members of the Senior Executive Service will receive the prestigious Presidential Rank Awards from the Biden administration. It's the highest honor for career civil servants. The winners come from 37 federal agencies and make up only 5% of SES members. The announcement comes after the awards were canceled last year. The Pentagon is on its way to receiving a $24 billion budget increase from what President Biden had originally requested for the DOD. The House of Representatives passed the $786 billion Defense Authorization Act on Tuesday night. The spending from the new budget is slotted to go towards a significant increase for initiatives that address rising tensions with China and Russia, as well as the procurement of new aircraft and ships. However, the NDAA does not include cybersecurity incident reporting. We'll talk more about that later in today's program. The U.S. Army will award the Purple Heart to 39 soldiers who were injured when Iran attacked their Iraq base with ballistic missiles in 2020. After a CBS News investigation, the soldiers injured from the attack, who were originally denied the award, got approved for the Purple Heart this week. The Army's Human Resources Department says it is still reviewing several more Purple Heart nominations for those who were injured at the base. The Pentagon has announced the creation of a new position that will be responsible for coordinating the department's data and artificial intelligence efforts. The chief digital and AI officer will report to the deputy secretary of defense. Bob Work was deputy secretary of defense from 2014 to 2017. He is co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Secretary Work, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be back. So there are three offices, the Defense Digital Service, the Jake, and the Chief Data Officer. They'll now be under this new position, which is called Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer, CDAO. There has to be an acronym. How, well, ha how have these three offices worked together in the past, if at all? Well, this isn't a means by which to consolidate the work of several different offices, as you have said and uh, to start to try to make sense and make further uh, advancements on the digital transformation of the Department of Defense. So the Jake, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, which has been in existence for several years, will now kind of dissolve and the CDAO will take over the Jake's responsibilities. And as you said, the Defense Digital Service, this is a, for lack of a better word, a digital SWAT team. They can go anywhere in the Department of Defense and to help people who are having problems in software uh, and really get to the heart of the matter. They're extremely good. They've helped the department solve big problems uh, in their software. And then the Chief Data Officer, which was created to try to get all of the department's data in a usable, usable uh, manner, uh, it will still report under the chief information officer as required by Congress. But I think the expectation is over the course of the next year, the department will uh, ask Congress for a legislative relief and move the CDO, 
I'm using too many acronyms, the chief (laughs) data officer underneath the chief uh, digital and AI officer. All right, so So, this, but this new position will report directly to the deputy secretary of defense. That's the office you once held. Is this new position a good idea? I believe it is. Um, There has been some confusion over the responsibilities of all of these different offices. And all of the offices were reporting essentially to the deputy secretary, which who has an enormous span of control problem. So by bringing them underneath one individual who will talk with the deputy secretary, it will it will help the deputy secretary really focus on the problems that matter. And it will help all of these different disparate offices start to work better together. So I think it is a good idea. I mean, do you think the three organizations should just be merged into one? I mean, are they are they really going to be separate at this point? Well, legislation has generally said what you can do at this point. So legislation requires that the CDO be operationally, excuse me, be underneath the chief information officer. Uh, DDS was established by the department, not legislated. Uh, But the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, Congress said that must report to the deputy secretary. So this first memo basically is saying, okay, working within legislation as it exists now, this is the best first step. They're going to bring in a gentleman by the name of Jim Mitri. Jim Mitri will be a senior advisor to the SecDef, a deputy secretary. And by February, uh, Jim's job is to write a memo to the deputy secretary and say, this is how we should shape all of this up over the long term. And then the fully operationally capable CDAO uh, will come into effect on June 1st next year. So this is the first step. Uh, Jim Mitri comes in as more or less the acting CDAO and will try to make sense of everything and make a recommendation to Secretary Hicks. Secretary Hicks will approve. Things will start to move out on 1 February. And by 1 June, hopefully there'll be kind of an understanding between the department and Congress what is the best way forward. Uh, Secretary Work, I want to pivot a little bit to uh, talk a little bit about the Jake because a couple months ago, the director of that uh, center, Lieutenant General Michael Groen, had said that most of the Pentagon's data is, quote, and I'm quoting him, crap. What's wrong with the data? Well, the data is all over the place. Uh, it's very difficult to get to. That's the first problem. Then the data may not be in a form that can be used by algorithms in machine learning applications. And so what he was talking about is, okay, let's find out where all the data is. Let's get access to all the data. Let's review the data and see what type of shape it's in uh, and say, how will we use this data? And is the data in a, in good shape to do what we want to do. Secretary Hicks has said, look, we want a a data-centric department. We want our decisions kind of informed by data. 
We would like our operations informed by data. And moving to machine learning applications across the department will require us to really have a handle on where the data is, how, how good a shape it is in, and uh, making sure that it can be used in the ways that we want to. All right. Well, Secretary Work, uh, nice to talk to you as always. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. You too. Coming next, federal cyber leaders have major blind spots when it comes to tracking ransomware attacks. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why only a fraction of those attacks get reported to the government. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The U.S. government is largely in the dark when it comes to ransomware attacks. The National Defense Authorization Act for 2022 moved closer to becoming law, but does not include cybersecurity incident reporting legislation. Bob Bigman is former Chief Information Security Officer at the CIA. Bob, nice to see you again. Thank you. Good to see you. The DHS Undersecretary for Strategy and Policy said last month that only a small fraction of ransomware attacks are reported to the federal government. Is that surprising to you? No, not at all. Um, you know, it, the, the actual idea of voluntary reporting um, is not going to be effective. Um, you know, no, no company wants to take the risk and publicly report that, uh, you know, the king has no clothes here and that, uh, you know, we may have cyber exposure, right? Uh, so it, it's antithetical to think that they're going to willingly report uh, to the U.S. government uh, incidents that occur in, in their network. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. Well, spell out the advantages that the government derives from getting that information, good and timely reporting on cyber attacks. Oh, it's absolutely necessary. I mean, if we're going to have any chance at getting good analytics and understanding, especially especially Russian uh, uh, hacking uh, campaigns, we have to understand the breadth, the depth, uh, timing, what types of industries are affected, what types of payloads they're using. Um, right now, we're getting spotty and insufficient information to make any real conclusions. And, and this is why, as, as the report said, that you know we can't we can't give the president or anyone in government any really solid information, uh, accurate information on uh, what's happening. Um, no, it, it, it's. Uh, I do agree with those who criticize it uh, and say that you know we, we need more information. So, absent actual legislation for cyber incident reporting, is there a way to compel reporting by private companies of cyber attacks? Um, no, I, I'll be honest with you that I, I, I'm not necessarily a big fan of legislation, but I think in this area, uh, I think legislation probably would would help. Uh, at least make uh, organizations, you know, legally uh, required to report some information regarding types of attacks, dates of attacks, breadth, depth of attacks, you know, uh, certain information uh, that the government would use. Uh, we don't necessarily have to invade the privacy of the company. And, and, you know, that will only come after we experience it for a while, right? We need to have some degree of time to experience that the, the government can do this and do this well. Uh, and then I think you'll see it uh, uh, expand. But, yeah, I, I actually think this is something that has to be has to be legislated. You know, voluntary, voluntarily reporting that your, your kids have acne is, is not going to work. 
Well, you mentioned privacy. I mean, can private companies be assured that that information stays private if they report it to the government? Well, yeah, assured, you know, I, I, they can give them a high degree of assurance, I think. Uh, if if uh, they set the right um, uh, systems and processes and really uh, work hard to keep the data private, I, I believe they can. Um, you know, there's just a historical mistrust of the government holding your data, right? And the only way to solve that is by experiencing it over a period of time where that trust can grow. Uh, I, I, I feel confident the government can uh, uh, hold this information. Now, I also think more importantly that they don't necessarily need the information that exposes the actual company. Uh, there's ways of uh, including the information and obscuring, you know, the, the, actually who the company is uh, to make this data more secure. Um, and, and I know the government has thought through all this, um, but again, just trying to convince companies that we're really good and we'll really do it right this time. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a hard, that's a hard and, and difficult and, and frankly hasn't worked to date. So Bob, at this point, do we even know if ransomware attacks have increased or decreased recently? Oh, they've increased. Uh, there, there's no, yeah, uh, there, there is a, um, you know, a ransom war, ransomware war going on right now. I mean, um, I don't know what the actual numbers are because, like the government, we don't we don't have them. Uh, but just from my own involvement with working with various companies, uh, you know, my workload of ransomware incidents has increased. You know, 25, 30 percent in the last two months. E either the companies uh, are, are extremely worried about it, believe they have had infections that either have or haven't worked. Uh, but, you know, uh, where their uh, security software has stopped it. Um, or, as I said, a number of my clients basically are experiencing uh, ransomware, ransomware attacks. You know, I'm, I'm curious about the FBI because they've said that, um, you know, cyber criminals find the holidays uh, an attractive time to attack. What is their role in, in cyber crime? Are they simply after the fact where they, you know, try to bring criminals to justice? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're trying to make cases uh, to bring cyber criminals uh, to justice. Uh, and, and the way they do this is they obtain evidence. So they have to have uh, people contributing uh, information to them, including, by the way, the ISPs, who we, we haven't discussed. Uh, I, I think, you know, when I begin legislation, I would begin it with the uh, ISPs to make them more responsible. Uh, they see the traffic that's going through our networks. Uh, and, and I think it's time to hold them more accountable as well. But uh, yeah, so the FBI basically needs, you know, the information to form their cases as they do in any type of uh, uh, investigation. And the forensic information that they get from uh, the agencies, or excuse me, from the companies, is critical to them building their cases against these various organizations. Uh, and that's a question of international politics as to whether or not something will actually get done. But the bureau is doing a you know a, a really credible job of actually building cases and have and have had a number of successes. All right. Well, Bob, thanks as usual, and happy holidays to you. Same to you. Thank you. Up next, there's been a surge in defense contract spending. Still ahead on Government Matters, how the Pentagon is reforming its acquisition process. We'll be right back.
The Defense Department has seen a surge in spending over the last five years. That growth comes along with shifts in acquisition and strategic priorities for the Pentagon. Gregory Sanders is Deputy Director and Fellow for the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Greg, welcome. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. So, as I said, there's been an increase in defense contract obligations for the last five years, 41%, which seems substantial. What's causing that? So the low point five years ago was driven by the budget caps. And so sustained budget increases have been the biggest driver. But we've also seen uh, some increases due to foreign military sales that use the U.S. acquisition system but have international funders. So we've uh, talked on this program about uh, other transaction authority or OTA mm -hmm. agreements. Um, what's been their role in conducting, um, in improving defense research and development, and what trends have you seen? So they bring more flexibility. They can work with consortiums that include non-traditional vendors. So more Silicon Valley or startups uh, might be some examples there, but they're also spreading to places like Austin. Um, so they're actually up 122% in just one year. That was driven largely by COVID-19 response from the U.S. federal government. But the larger emphasis on prototyping has really helped change how we do research and development. Have you seen that as a positive? Is that, I mean, do you welcome that increase? Greater adaptability um, and the bringing in new vendors is important and welcome. That said, OTA does have less transparency. And so it's going to be important to balance the benefits it brings and the ability to conduct oversight. So do you think that that increase, though, in OTAs has increased the focus on research and development within the Defense Department? So overall contracting in traditional contracting is actually down slightly. So it has slightly increased. Um, it has allowed for sustained funding in R&D, but otherwise would have been constrained by those decreases. So I'd say yes, but it's in part a supplanting rather than a full-on addition to traditional R&D. So where have the biggest increases in expenditures been? What have, what have you been seeing? So aircraft and ships and submarines and construction have actually had the largest dollar increases. But in percentage terms, missile defense is up 29%. And over the longer period, uh, missiles and ordnance is up 95%. Uh, That's over five years. So what do you think that says about defense uh, priorities? So some of it is driven by you know, air and missile defense and ordnance and missiles are both directly in line with the national defense strategy. The other um, areas I mentioned in part reflect buying major products from the big five primes and also a little bit of uh, wall funding. Um, so we are seeing the shift to the Indo-PACOM but we aren't quite seeing the shift to full-on high technology because C4ISR and space have not seen the major jumps you might expect. So uh, I, I guess that's what I wanted to ask is, is, do shifts in funding always correlate to shifts in strategies and priorities? There is a real lag. So our past research have found that often a shift in priority can take two years to show up in acquisition spending. And particularly when talking major defense acquisition projects that have you know, decade-long lifespans. You know, the F-35 was a major driver of many of the trends I've described today already. So they do show up, but it takes time, and it requires hard choices that were not always made during this period. Are you foreseeing any major spending shifts coming up, um, you know, in this fiscal year or in the next? 
So we presumably will see the drop off in a wall funding, but otherwise. What, what drop off are you talking about? Oh, so there's a jump in construction spending in New Mexico and Arizona that I think we'll probably see dropping down because that was probably for the border wall. But in larger terms, you know, the F-35 is still going to be a major driver. Things like Virginia-class submarines are going to stay there. So we're going to see dramatic shifts. What we might see is some changes in acquisition priorities will have longer um, results. What are you seeing in uh, changes or reforms to the acquisition process itself? So there were a variety of reforms emphasizing flexibility and speed over the last five years. So the Adaptable Acquisition Framework, DIU, um, and things like the Air Force's pitch day. So those have made a difference in small concentrated cases, but they have not increased the total number of vendors, which has actually dropped some. So I think there's going to be a continued emphasis on bringing in new vendors, I and mean, there's a new OMB memo that emphasizes that, um, and continued emphasis on high technology, but not always such an emphasis that really redirects the major funding. So what are, you, what are you expecting for not just the near term, but for the long term as far as defense spending goes? So we might be at a peak or relative peak for obligations. I think they'll probably stay relatively high, but I don't think we're going to see the sustained growth of recent years. We might also see a little bit of a change in uh, merger and acquisition policy as the Biden administration has been more skeptical of hyper-consolidation, as they have mentioned in fears, whereas the Trump administration largely tried to follow the market forces as they saw them. All right. Well, Greg, thank you very much for your work and for coming in. Thank you for the chance to speak. You can find a link to Greg's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest update, reminders, and links to our interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.